Hello, this is Ian Wolfe, producer of Diffusion Science Radio. This show depends on your support. Please make a donation directly with the PayPal button at www.diffusionradio.com or support Diffusion by downloading a free audiobook from audibletrial.com science or go to diffusionradio.com support and click on an Amazon link or buy my nano drones. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Innovation Engineering. But first up, here's the news. Scientists are marching in the streets. CSIRO is to stop looking at climate change in hopes that it will go away. His government having cut 1,400 science jobs since the election, the Innovation Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull is now overseeing cutting around 350 more jobs in the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, this CSIRO. Most of them in climate science. I use a lot of quotes and make a lot of claims in this story. I encourage you to verify all of them in the links on the Innovation Engineering episode page on diffusionradio.com, and to look them up yourself. Climate scientists from around Australia gathered for a national conference. They've now been protesting in the streets of Melbourne. The protesters pointed out that the job cuts mean that Australia will be unable to meet its international obligations, including those from the Paris Climate Summit. Australia's ability to make long-range weather forecasts will also be heard. In an email to staff... Water divining promoter and CSIRO chief executive Larry Marshall said jobs in the Data 61, Oceans and Atmosphere, Land and Water and Manufacturing divisions would be cut at a rate of 175 per year over the two-year strategic alignment. It's no surprise that our environment-hating government would cut funding to research about the environment. But the Data 61 division was the centrepiece of Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's innovation agenda last year. How will CSIRO refocus on communications and computing while losing communications and computing scientists? But then, how will CSIRO work out how to mitigate climate change while losing most of their climate change experts? How is the Bureau of Meteorology meant to make accurate predictions of bushfires, droughts and floods if the CSIRO climate modelling it relies on is taken away? Dr Marshall has said climate scientists have convinced everybody that climate change is happening, so we don't need them to tell us how it's happening and when, we don't need their experience and expertise to work out what to do about it, and we especially don't need them to tell us if what we plan to do will actually work. Industry and Science Minister Christopher Pine claimed that the cuts were entirely Dr Marshall's decision, not his government's. I'm sure the exact one-to-one match of the decisions with Liberal National Party anti-environment ideology is just a coincidence. Dr Marshall said 
that changes would see the organisation move away from measuring and monitoring climate change to instead focus on how to adapt to it. Or, to paraphrase, that the CSIRO needs to stop getting information about climate change in order to better know how to deal with it without having any data about what's happening in the real world. Dr Marshall said, The people that were so brilliant at measuring and modelling climate change might not be the right people to figure out how to adapt to it. Or they might be the most essential people. I don't know how you can plan and test how well your adaptations work without having people monitoring your results. Pollinating animals like bats and flying foxes fall out of their trees when the temperature goes above 40 degrees Celsius. In 2014, tens of thousands of them died on one hot day. How will that be mitigated without monitoring for success or failure? Dr Larry Marshall, paid $800,000 a year and currently being sued in the High Court with accusations of fraud from his previous corporate endeavours, announced that CSIRO, as a taxpayer-funded scientific research organisation, needs to have the same level of staff turnover, people leaving the organisation and new people being hired, as he has observed that businesses have. He declined to explain how this turnover was a good thing for the corporations, where it's normally seen as an urgent problem. The CSIRO needs to focus on growth, Dr Marshall says, even if that means choosing what to exit which sounds like he's trying to grow by shrinking. Dr Marshall is quoted by the ABC as saying, The good thing about turnover is it creates a career path for junior scientists to aspire to. Aspire to. Not actually have. Somehow, knowing that your job is not secure will give you a career path to be promoted within the organisation after you're sacked to be replaced by an even more junior scientist. Daniel Edwards, an evolutionary biologist, turned down a 380000 Discovery Early Career Award that would see her return to work in Australia because there's no career path for scientists here. She's not the only one. Very few corporations do scientific research in Australia. So CSIRO and university research is all we have. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now, innovation done right. Rowan Brahm works as an innovation engineer in the Lang O'Rourke Engineering Excellence Group, the research, development and innovation department of what is a large multinational corporation. Rowan has a PhD in chemical engineering and undergraduate degrees in engineering and biology, with postgraduate training in innovation and enterprise. I met him at the Sydney Biohackers Meetup, which was hosted at Deloitte. I began by asking Rowan, what is innovation engineering? Innovation engineering is the latest buzzword on the corporate block, but it does actually mean something very real. And so what it does mean is that large organizations are like very large ships. They have a course that they are traveling on and they have a lot of momentum behind them. And it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of impetus to change the course of that ship. And you need to be quite sure about what that change in direction is gonna be because you need to commit a lot to that change in direction. 
And the problem is for a lot of these very conservative businesses, so the company I work for is a multinational construction company. Construction is typically thought of as a very conservative industry. It likes to do the same thing over and over and over again. And this problem is even more acute for that company because they have so much vested interest in the way things were done. But they do understand that just because that is the way things were done in the past doesn't mean that is the way things will be done in the future. And so from a commercial perspective, there's a huge impetus to identify what are these new ways of working, what are these new ways of manufacturing, what are these new ways of interacting with your workforce and applying them to these very staid conservative industries. And that's basically my job, is to work inside of this larger company and to act as a champion for that change, to develop those ideas for change, to reach out to external parties, so startups, universities, whoever, and to ultimately sort of enact that very much larger big picture cultural change that needs to occur within the company. Is it frustrating fighting the forces of conservatism? It can be sometimes, but I wouldn't say it's frustrating so much it is a field of opportunity <laughs> to use a very politically, politically correct term for that. In that, sure, it, it is frustrating sometimes to work in a conservative industry, but what that does mean is that there are a huge number of opportunities for new ways of doing things. I wasn't exaggerating when I said there are some things that have been done the same way for 100 years. If you look at the rail industry, how they assemble rail lines or how they operate a freight rail line, there are literally business practices in that space that were developed in 1850. They've worked since 1850. And so these people are just like, it's working. Why do we need to change it? And the reason they need to change it or the reason they should want to change it is just because it worked 150 years ago. Doesn't mean there aren't better ways of doing it now. And so you have a very large cultural barrier you basically need to punch through. But it's not frustrating. If anything, it's satisfying. Because these people are not, you know, they're not dumb. They're not stupid. In many ways, they're rational actors. They're working in an industry that has very, very low risk appetite. Because if something goes wrong in the construction industry, that is hundreds of millions of dollars on the line. So they want certainty. They, want, they don't really care if something's a little bit better. They want to know, can they guarantee this is going to be done at this cost, at this time, and they can then hand it over to the client. And so when you say, is it frustrating? I would say sometimes yes, but in the way that sometimes the things that are frustrating are ultimately satisfying because they can be brought around. People in these industries can see. You just need to converse with them, engage with them. And once you do, it's very satisfying to feel how easy it actually is to get that change enacted. And that's happened a lot in, in my job. Initially, there's a lot of resistance, a lot of pushback, a lot of, uh, what is this? I don't want to know about it. And then suddenly, you know, they're calling you up saying, hey, 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 can we do this? Can we do that? Can we do this? So, yeah. They must be at least a little bit open to change or they wouldn't have hired and created your position in the first place. Yes, so the company I work for is actually a very unique company in this global environment, and that Langer Rock is a privately owned company. So there is one individual who has ultimate control, essentially, of what happens to Langer Rock, and he's vested, I guess, in ensuring his legacy. And I guess without getting too much into the culture of corporate ownership, because that is a dry topic, you have publicly owned companies and privately owned companies. 
And I have found the privately owned companies tend to be very much more responsive to these ideas because you have a very small number of people and you can talk directly to those people. If you have a publicly owned company and they are responsible to an amorphous, anonymous block of shareholders, the risk appetite is actually very much lower because they need to justify themselves to a random collection of people, which tends to the median. If you think about you've got a whole bunch of people, the safest thing to do is just do what they expect. And we're lucky in Langerock that we don't have that problem. We have a corporate owner, an individual who owns a company. He's very interested in innovation, change, being part of this new economy. And as a consequence of that, we are basically enabled to do a lot of what we need to do. And so I feel there is a corporate governance piece. We're talking about the disruptive economy. That's the buzzword these days. Malcolm Turnbull has released the innovation statement. The government's talking about disruption. We're going to have innovation precincts. We're going to have this. We're going to have that. We're going to have whatever. But there is some fundamental thought that needs to be done around corporate ownership and corporate governance. And how do you get publicly owned companies which have a distributed sense of importance and a distributed sense of appreciation of risk and return? And how do you get them to have an appetite for innovation? That is a question that is, as yet, I feel unsolved. Can you give me some examples of projects you're working on that you're excited about? In our group, we work for a construction company, but I guess the technologies we work on are not construction specific. What we try and identify are what are called the disruptive innovations. Again, that's a bit of a buzzword, but disruptive innovation does actually mean something very real. And it means innovation that creates further markets. It allows other fundamentally different ideas to build on that original idea. A classic example is the steam engine, the iPad, the first computer, all these things are disruptive innovations. And a lot of our job is trying to identify what those innovations are right now and adapt them to this quite conservative industry. So there's two that really stick out. Well, there's more, there's more than two that stick out for the purposes of this conversation. We have augmented reality we've done a lot of work with and 3D printing we've done a lot of work with. So augmented reality in particular has been maybe in some ways the perfect story for how innovation can be done in a company like this in that it started off as some years ago now, augmented reality is becoming a bit more mainstream, but some years ago when we started looking at it, nobody knew what augmented reality was. And so then we had the challenge of talking to this larger company, getting them on board with a technology they've never heard of, they don't know what it is, they don't know what the, it involves, what the costs are, anything. And we had a really good story of basically incrementally building up that case for cultural change within the company, which then ultimately led to the company creating its own, uh, this is going to sound like so dry, but its own content management system around augmented reality, which sounds boring, but was actually hugely important because that's when augmented reality transitioned from these little one-off things that we did for a bid or for a project or a client to something that the business could then use as just a business-as-usual tool, in that because we created this online content management system, anyone in the business could log in, create their own AR experiences, and then push them out into whatever their bespoke application was, which is so important in a company as large as the company I work for, Langerock, which is tens of thousands of employees. You need to be able to create these innovations that are more than just a one-off cool thing. They're actually enabling innovations. They allow other people to actually build on what you've done and do whatever they need to do in their own bespoke space. 
And AR has been really successful with one industry awards around it. It was apparently Australia's best internal HR innovation for 2015. Just briefly, for those few people who still haven't heard of what augmented reality is, do you want to give a very quick definition? Yeah, certainly. So augmented reality is essentially the insertion of content into our real world perception, which sounds not a good way of describing it. It's one of those technologies, which is when you see it in action, you understand immediately what it's doing. It's actually quite hard. So what I would say, imagine you hold up, say, an iPad. An iPad's got a camera on it. It can obviously transmit that image to the iPad screen. Imagine on that iPad screen, instead of just seeing the raw camera feed, you are instead seeing, say, a building or a person or an activity digitally inserted into that real-life scene to give the appearance that it looked like it was part of that real-life scene. So it's a way of adding to our reality. It's augmented reality. And I guess that's the other side of the coin to virtual reality, which is where it puts your human consciousness into the virtual world. Augmented reality puts the digital into our world. So it's virtual reality and augmented reality are very, very related technologies, but they basically come at it from different directions. And augmented reality, I feel, has very much more potential than virtual reality. The applications of augmented reality are nearly limitless. You just think around, if you could just look around your environment right now, and if you could have contextually relevant information just inserted into your visual feed, like, I need to go in this direction, or my internal core temperature is this, or the pipe I need to service is here, under the ground. And these are all things we've actually done. I mean, all those examples I've just mentioned. Augmented reality applications we've actually developed and rolled out. And it, it, it is a truly disruptive technology. Augmented reality will fundamentally change the way that people interact with digital content, and it will fundamentally change the way that they think about digital content, because it can suddenly contextualise a lot of what was quite abstractified. So in the business environment, the building environment, sorry, I should say, you have a huge amount of information around what is in a building. All the components, the costs, the delivery information, maintenance information, all these sorts of things are typically trapped away in a database somewhere. The power of augmented reality is it can drag that information out of the database and put it into your consciousness, put it into your field of view, put it into your lived experience in a way that it's no longer just a cell on an Excel spreadsheet. It's something that you're looking at and actually has a really tangible, contextual relevance and meaning to something that is in your environment right now. And the applications of this are just limitless, literally limitless. Augmented reality, I think, will fundamentally redefine. Once the technology gets there, there are hardware limitations to it right now. But maybe five, sooner than you think, maybe five years from now, ten years from now, it will fundamentally change the way that people interact, not even with digital content, but with each other, with stuff, with this TV here, with anything. Because you have this whole other layer, this whole other world that can then be inserted into our own lived experience. And, yeah, sorry. No, no, I'll stop, I'll stop that rambling. <laughs> <laughs> and you're also looking into 3D printing for your industry. Yes. So 3D printing, uh, obviously, it, it's another disruptive technology. 3D printing is going to enable so much change and innovation and market creation in so many industries, which is well beyond the scope of this conversation right now. But in construction, it's an obvious one, right? Because construction is stuff. It's physical stuff. 
but it's always been a challenge to apply 3D printing to construction because construction elements are typically quite large. They need certain structural properties. You need to insert rebar into them and whatnot. But at the same time, it has so much potential for construction. Because you think about built environment, you look out this window right here, all these office blocks look the same, right? The, all these rooms look the same. They're all made of panels, they're all made of flat surfaces, they're all made of stuff that is easy to mass manufacture, stuff that is easy to create in a homogenous, well-defined way. What 3D printing will allow is there are architects and engineers who have these incredible digital designs of what a building could look like if you were freed from these manufacturing constraints. And 3D printing basically enables that vision. It will enable a fundamentally new generation of buildings and a new generation of architecture and infrastructure that can be so much less homogenized. It can suddenly enable this individuality in construction and architecture, which we think about it, we've lost. You think about architecture 200 years ago, to pick an arbitrary number. Obviously, they didn't have precast panel factories, which were just cranking out concrete panels. It was all made by artisans, and it was all made by hand labor, you know, people making stuff. And what that led to was then a huge variation in the stuff that was made because humans were intimately connected in the creation of it. What's happened through our, our recent our recent history, obviously through the mass manufacturing regime, there's been a homogenization of manufacture that no longer do you have an individual creating this, you have a replicating machine creating it, which is great because then you're like, you know what it's going to spit out, it can spit it out at a known rate, it's going to be cheaper, fantastic, and that's brilliant. But what's been lost there is that individuality, is that spontaneity, that you're not constrained by what can be made. You're not constrained by, I need to design a thing because it's, I can only make it out of panels of this size and this weight. It can suddenly become much more free in your design. And so 3D printing in the construction space will unlock, I think, a, a renaissance in architecture and a renaissance in construction and engineering design because suddenly you can insert this human element to these designs in a way that was never economical. I mean, sure, you could always pay right now. You could pay some dude bucket loads of money and he would create for you a bespoke architecturally designed house. It's going to be expensive. It's how do you unlock that that vision for the masses. And that's what 3D printing and construction will do. Along with a whole bunch of other very more prosaic like business things. Uh, especially associated with the... Uh, so a lot of construction right now is done in moulds. So you get a lot of plywood and you'll strap it together and you'll pour concrete into it and that's your mould. If you can print those moulds and recycle them, suddenly you have a very much more economic system. Very much, uh, The system itself is much quicker to turn around. And we've done some, you know, cost analysis of this, and the cost savings are massive, like maybe 25% of the cost of doing it the old way. So there are some very real business imperatives to go down this road based around cost and time, certainty. But then there are some real human aspects around why 3D printing in construction is so important, because you can inject that human element once more, which is maybe being lost. So finally, do other industries have innovation engineers? Yeah, they do. So look, I work in a very conservative industry. Construction is a very 
conservative industry. Uh, they probably wouldn't call them innovation engineers. They would just be people working that organisation. Part of the reason for this job title is to very clearly state that this is a thing that is important for this industry, and that's part of the larger cultural shift that needs to occur inside construction. But if you look, I guess, sort of in the various uh, global markets, so in Australia, for instance, Australia is quite a unsophisticated market in terms of innovation and change. If you go to America, the job that I do, I imagine is, not even I imagine, you know, I know, I know it is, is much more commonplace, but it's not a, a special bespoke job. It's more just kind of a cultural thing. And that's, I guess, the ultimate goal, that you don't need people who are specific innovation engineers who their job is to do innovation full-time. Rather, that is something that is a cultural value shared by everyone in that organisation. And people just do their job as per usual, but they kind of act as innovation engineers in that way, in that they're always looking for these new ways of doing things. Uh, so, look, in Australia... Not many people have the job I do in this market. It's a very, very uh, privileged job. People have looked at our business model and have wanted to emulate it to varying degrees of success. Uh, but I, I imagine maybe 10 years' time, less than 10 years' time, the job title of innovation engineer would be redundant because innovation will just be part of people's job. Everyone will be a little innovation engineer. And you'll have other things that you need to do, and being innovation is just part of it. Rowan, thank you very much. No, thank you, thank you. That was Rowan Brahm, innovation engineer at Langer Rourke. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions, and donations. To science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Coringai, 2 NVR in Nambaka Valley, 2 Double X in Canberra, and 3 NBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then explore more than 700 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. 
When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.